Well, good morning everyone. Today we're going to start our new series in 1 Corinthians and we're going to be working our way through this letter over the next few months uh, interspersed with other people preaching and speaking but this is going to be our main series for the, the next little while. So you might want to read this and begin to read these first chapters particularly of 1 Corinthians and begin to understand a bit for yourself what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. I'm going to read a few verses starting in chapter 1 and verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you easily wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says... I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, which is Peter, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptise any one of you except Crispus and Gaius, uh, so no one can say they were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I can't remember if I baptised anybody else. For Christ didn't send me to baptise but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Father, we just ask for your help in these passages, Lord, written so long ago uh, to cultures, Lord, that are very strange to us and yet full of truth for us, full of life-changing truth that will transform us. And we pray, Spirit of God, will you just come upon us as we hear your word, as we Come to a try and understand it. And would you guide us into what this means for us? Help us to apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Corinth is a port city. It's uh, an important city in the ancient world. Its importance in the ancient world was even greater because of its geographical position. It's a very strong short strip of land between the Adriatic and the Aegean that sort of passes right through where Corinth was built. Now in the modern world we know about the financial benefits of shortening transport links. We know what happens when that goes wrong, when ships get stuck in canals. Now in the ancient world they didn't have the ability, just they just didn't have the ability to cut a canal through this short strip of land, but they did something else maybe even as ingenious. What they did was this, they paved a way across this short strip of land, they unloaded the ship on one side and they literally dragged it through to the other side and reloaded the ship and they shortened the journey in that way and that's uh, really why Corinth was there it's that's it's that geographic feature being able to get between two bodies of water much more quickly than sailing all the way around one side to the other um, so an incredible thing I must have been an amazing sight to see these huge ships dragged through a city. Um, today, by the way, there is a canal. They eventually did uh, dig, uh, you know, they sort of cut one through like they've done in Suez and 
Panama and other places like that. But all this made uh, or added to the significance of Corinth as a bustling hub of commerce and trade and, and just people from all over the, the Roman Empire would come and pass through Corinth. The other thing we need to know, and this is probably even more significant, is on top of the hill overlooking the city was the ancient temple uh, to Aphrodite, uh, the Greek goddess of love, of reproduction and of sex, uh, Roman equivalent to, to Venus. This is what the ancient historian Strabo says about this temple. And the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, who uh, both men and women are dedicated to the goddess. And therefore, it was also on account of these women that the city was crowned, uh, crowded with people and grew rich. For instance, the ship captains freely squandered their money, and hence the proverb, not for every man is a voyage to Corinth. It was a wealthy city, cosmopolitan, young in many ways, and it lived in the shadow of an ancient sex cult. <laughs> this city was really obsessed with sex uh, in every conceivable way, and that kind of uh, that temple on top of the hill to Aphrodite symbolised that. The, the city would also be full of other temples to other gods. And so the sacrifices, the meat sacrifices to those gods would have been the meat that was in the city. That's how everyone got their food. It first would have come in um, and arrived because the gods needed their sacrifices. Every kind of corner, street corner have had one of these temples or many of them. And then it would be uh, distributed. Sometimes there will be even restaurants connected to the temples um, and so there was food but all that food uh, was connected to the sacrifices to the various gods of the day and as I said it's a cosmopolitan city so all every flavour as it were of God would have been there. So Paul we might say where do you want to plant a church? How are you going to pick the kind of city? And he's chosen this one. In Acts 18, we read that Paul stayed in Corinth for about 18 months before sailing on to Syria. Interesting that he doesn't just pick a city that is uh, kind of an easy city, a nice middle class, you know, they're all, already kind of pretty much believing what he believes. Maybe a very Jewish city uh, could have been one he would have chosen. But here in Corinth, he picks something very, very, very counter to the gospel. And there he believes as do those early believers, the power of Jesus will transform these, uh, these dear people who are lost, separated from God, without hope in the world. And there the church begins. And this letter is written probably three or four years later, after he's moved on from Corinth. And he has received various reports from the church, and at least one letter we don't know, we don't have a copy of the letter that they wrote to him, but we do know because the way this uh, 1 Corinthians is written to and 2 Corinthians that he's responding to some of the questions that they are asking him. And so the major themes of 1 Corinthians are these, and we've read clearly one of them already. Divisions in the church. That's the first thing that he's addressing. We're going to look at a little bit of that today. Then immorality in the church. He looks at the, the challenge of the culture uh, beginning to overtake the, 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 the church itself, the culture of the church, um, and that being uh, around different sexual practices and what's, what's good and what's not good about 
um, about sex and about sexuality. Um, then there's a compromising of the Lord's table, um, how they were doing that, how they were taking communion together. They'd kind of added to the communion with, with what they called love feasts. They were eating together as a church, which on the surface is a great thing, but their attitudes around that he is challenging. Their misuse of the Lord's Supper, um, abuse of spiritual gifts, um, and finally denying the resurrection itself. So it's a pretty serious letter. These are big deals uh, for the gospel and for Christians worldwide, and that's why it's good for us to attend to some of these things. And so we're going to do that in the next few months, and we'll take it relatively slowly, so we shouldn't be rushing too much. So Paul begins in this letter, as he does in pretty much every one of his letters. He is thoroughly consistent in the way he argues. He, he's been confronted in, in his, the reports from the church in Corinth, and it's concerning him. It is, it's, he's worried about the church. How you know? I need to address some of these things, but he doesn't just start by sort of saying, what's going on? He begins, as he always does, with the correct motivation to change, which is this, God has acted first. He begins by explaining the gospel again, even in a, a relatively short way. The only reason, the only motivation to change, to be transformed as a believer, is the gospel itself. We don't come to God trying to prove how good we are. We come to God humbly, recognizing our need for him. So let's just work through something of what the gospel is. Just a few points, because that's what Paul always does. He says, remember this first. Before you start addressing your behavior, remember this motivation. And of course, the gospel begins with humanity outside of God, uh, lost and separated, and primarily separated from the life of God. That's where the Bible begins. It says, you, you're cut off from God. You can't know him. However hard you might try, you can't get in connection with God. So if you're here today and actually you're thinking, I don't even believe in a God. I, I don't think there's any evidence for God. That's the starting point that for everybody. That's where everybody starts. It's where the gospel starts. There's a reason why you feel that way. It's because humanity is cut off from God. That, we're separated from that life that Jesus came to tell us about. And we make all kind of attempts to fill this gap we do have some sense of loss and yet we don't know how to uh, we don't know how to explain it we don't even know how to to work it back and yet we try all sorts of things so we try and fix this sense of loss a sense of separation even though it's nebulous in our minds often with sex or power or money or a, a search for self or a search for significance a sense of, I want to make a difference. All these kind of things are part of that core within us that says there's something not right around and about the world. Now, Jesus came to show us what had been lost and to make a way for us to rediscover that life in God. And Jesus' death broke the power that separated humanity from God. It broke the power of what the Bible calls sin. He was the only one who could do it because he was the only man who was ever sinless. And Jesus' resurrection, when he came back to life, he showed us, demonstrated, this is the kind of life that I am now offering you. He broke the power of death itself. And this life is now offered freely to those who will humble themselves, admit their broken state and ask him for help. 
And God will forgive and restore anyone who comes to him and asks him to do just that. And this is a free gift of God. This process is profound and powerful. The Bible says it's a transformation. It's not just, well, now I believe some things I didn't believe for before. It's that you're, you're being changed. It's like a metamorphosis, which is why the Bible calls it being born again, which is a strange sort of phrase. Until we look into maybe the natural world and think, actually, we know something of what metamorphosis is. So here's a question for you if you're trying to work out what it means to be born again. So if you think about these, these beautiful butterflies that we would see in the spring, sometimes even now on a warm day, when is a butterfly born? Um, so the first, th the first thing a butterfly is, is it's an egg. And out of the egg comes a little grub, which then grows um, and then goes into a chrysalis. And then, and then this transformation happens and out of the chrysalis comes a butterfly. When is the butterfly born? Is it born when it comes out of the egg or is it born when it comes out of the chrysalis? And the answer is, of course, that both are true. But when it comes out of the chrysalis, it would be right to say, wow, that looks like that grub's been born again. It's been changed completely. And as we know, well, this is what it was always supposed to be. It's the intention all the way through in the genetics and the DNA of this tiny grub, of this egg, that one day it will become a butterfly. The Bible says, Jesus said, in fact, you, you must be born again. That's what needs to happen. You need to come into the connection with the life that God gives, demonstrated through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul starts by describing those things. He reminds the Corinthians, this is how all this journey that you've been on started. Um, the letter says, look, you've become something that you weren't before. It's profound. It's beautiful. Now live in the good of that life. Live in the good of that transformation. Live in the good of that metamorphosis. Live in the good of the fact that you know is true, that you've been born again. And the first problem that Paul addresses right off the bat is divisions in the church caused by kind of an unhealthy elevation of leaders. It seems that some in the Corinthian church weren't particularly impressed with Paul as a speaker. And we need to just back up a little bit here and recognise that uh, one of the cult cultural norms of the day would be um, a day, of course, without any technology or TV or radio. You know, any kind of entertainment that came to town would have drawn a crowd. So anyone who got up to speak um, would have drawn a crowd. And if that speaker was a good orator, if they were good at speaking, if they were funny, engaging, if they had a kind of speaking skills the crowd would be very large indeed. And so Paul, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 and verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world, the world through his wisdom did not know him. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He's saying... Listen, the message itself, the content of the gospel that we've just described is powerful. It doesn't need to be dressed up with worldly wisdom. There's a simplicity to the gospel. He goes on to say, Jews demand a miraculous sign. And Greeks look for wisdom. There are cultural biases uh, that, that, that mean that certain groups of people, oh, I particularly like this kind of speaker. Or I particularly like this idea or this way of communicating. But he says, rather than playing to the culture, 
we preached what Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. He goes on to say in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Look, I didn't come to you uh, trying to be an impressive speaker. I wasn't trying to impress you with how clever I was. Yet the message that you heard from me transformed you. That metamorphosis happened in you. You came alive in God. You recognized your sin was gone. Your guilt was dealt with. That simple gospel message set you free. And you've been filled with the Spirit of God himself. It was that simple message that achieved that in you. And yet, after all of that, you are now returning to being impressed by maybe clever rhetoric or gathering to a particular style that you might like more than another. So some would say, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Peter. I follow Christ. And you're kind of garrisoning around those called to a particular personality, a particular style, maybe a particular theological bias or theme at the expense of gathering to Christ himself, recognizing the truth that the gospel is this great leveler. No one gets in because they're clever. No one gets in because they're rich. No one gets in because they're a particular culture or color. All are one in Christ, coming to him humbly, recognizing their need for him, rich, poor, influential, or completely uh, without any influence, have to come in the same way to Christ. And yet there they were in the church in Corinth, gathering little groups together, saying, no, I like it this way. No, this is better. Apollos was better. No, I like Peter. I like, well, they call him Cephas, but I preferred it this way. I preferred it that way. And all of this, says Paul, listen, you are, you, you're denying Christ in doing that. Actually, it, Christ is all. And when you champion one leader over another and you gather around that particular leader, you are denying the gospel itself. And so Corinth has become divisive and factions are, are, are forming in the church. And the, and the danger is that sects are going to, like sectarianism sects, they're going to uh, form up and separate off and of course we see that a lot today this tends to happen in a church the road of division uh, um, it, it, it frequently happens and so for instance the, the church names get changed because you know we, we fell out with this group and that group fell out with that group so we became two churches and so um, you might get this right so we're the first church of Christ in Bristol and, they, and so that church then goes down the line that the Corinthian church has begun and they separate out and become two churches. Now we have the first church of Bristol and the second church of Bristol. And this would go on and on. And I was reading about this a bit online and finding out that somewhere in, in Los Angeles in the States, there's the 28th church of whatever it is. And so they just kept on going and this fracturedness continues. And yet the gospel unites. Do you see? And Paul is saying, do you not understand the very essence of what you were taught, of what you experienced was to bring you together. And here you are now separating out as if this was normal and good. Listen, the mark of a godly leader is that they wouldn't let you follow them for reasons of personality or self-promotion. Any and all the gifts of a leader, and Paul goes on to talk about this, 
anything that a leader has that is good is a grace gift from God and should be carried with sensitivity and real humility, recognizing, listen, this is, I'm not impressive. Nobody is impressive. Paul's saying, look, it's, it's anything I gave you is a gift from God. That's not to deny that people are gifted, but it is to recognize where the good gifts come from. As good as any leader might be, says Paul later in these few chapters when he talks, actually Paul takes four chapters to deal with this. He's very concerned about these divisions or possibility of divisions in the church. But a mark of a good leader is that they recognize that, that their gifting comes from God, as I've said. And we need to recognize that, that, that however gifted a leader might be, it's God who makes something grow. It's God who makes something successful. It's God who makes someone flourish, something fruitful. It's God who brings salvation. So we shouldn't be too impressed, says Paul, with the sower or the farmer who waters the crops. It is God who puts life into the seed and makes it germinate and brings ultimately the harvest. There's work to be done, absolutely, but it's God who makes it grow. Any leader, any pastor, any of our pastors here, any of our leaders, they are under shepherds. <laughs> yes, they're there to look after the flock, if that's how we see ourselves. The Bible often does talk about the church as a flock, but they are under shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd, God himself. We mustn't forget that. You, each of you, gloriously, wonderfully, have connection with the living God himself, with the Father. You don't come through anybody else. It's not because you know me or because you know James or because you know Ash or Ben or anybody else that you get access to God. You come straight to him as you are on that same leveled playing field of humility before the gospel. Actually, one of the marks of a godly leader is this, that as a result of their ministry, what you find is that you're more inclined to be like Jesus. That's how you know you're in the right church, is that I'm being encouraged internally and externally uh, the, the teaching that I'm getting, the experiences of being part of this church are leading me to be more like Jesus, more motivated to follow him. Not that I'm super impressed with the leader. If I go away from a Sunday meeting or whatever it is thinking, oh, what a great man that is. What a, what a gifted speaker. What I want those. You might fleetingly think those things, of course. And as I've said, the gifts are not wrong. But ultimately, the mark of a good leader is they leave you wondering at Jesus himself. Wow, what a great God we serve. Now, let me just push this a little bit further and make a few comments into our world of like, follow and subscribe. Uh, we live in a, in a world where the cult of celebrity is a real thing. People follow celebrities. They follow gifted people individuals or gifted groups um, and that's happened more and more and it's happened quicker and quicker listen the cult of celebrity is just that don't be sucked in to who is influencing you and maybe that's a question for you who is influencing your walk with Jesus is it people that you know do you know their life do you know how they treat their families and their children their husbands and wives do you know can you observe that is there integrity in who they are or are they just a picture on a screen. The Bible is clear. You should know your leaders and they should live a life that's open before 
you. Why? Because integrity, that you do the same behind closed doors as you do in public, is a very, very highly regarded thing in the Bible. Very important that we do that. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I'm not writing to shame you, but to warn you as dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. The Christian world is littered with fallen celebrity leaders uh, 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 who, who have wrecked the lives of their followers. And everyone wants you to click and follow and subscribe, they want you to download and watch their particular thing. And Paul says the same, he says, there's, there's 10,000 people like that. There's not many people that are willing to be your father in the Lord. Not many people willing to get involved, to hear, to be part of your life, to understand and to champion you. And we've talked about fathers before and we will again, I have no doubt. He says there's 10,000 people like that, but there's few who would be your father. This is the kind of leaders that we need. The thing about the celebrity, the, the culture and the cult of celebrity is this. The bit of their life that's super attractive or impressive, uh, particularly in this celebrity world, is tiny. It's a very small bit. They're either, they might be super attractive or very, they might be a very gifted actor or singer or maybe they say things in a particular way that means, oh my goodness, I must listen to that person or download what that person is saying. But listen, the, the real celebrities, the big ones, they know that the rest of their lives are very ordinary and unimpressive. And so they will spend vast amounts of money hiding that bit of their life from you so that you only see the kind of the life from behind the filter and they'll spend lots of money trying to make sure you don't see that particular photo or hear that particular thing or see that particular video i'm not really talking about church celebrities now i'm talking about this cult of celebrity that we are so engulfed in um in in the world that we live in right now but the pressure on that tiny little bit of celebrity status, that little tiny thing that sets you apart from the crowd, that means you've got the thousands and thousands of followers. The pressure to emphasize that and to hide everything else is exactly the opposite of what it means to be a father in Christ. What it means to share your life as a leader with someone. So we just need to be careful we don't get sucked in to these things. And the pressure to, I suppose, believe your own rhetoric to believe that I am this or this person is this kind of superstar when actually life for everyone often is very ordinary indeed. And of course, the ultimate aim is to point to somebody else anyway, as we've already said. And so all these people, maybe we think they follow me because I say clever things. Uh, I better keep saying clever things or they won't follow me anymore or I'm a very I'm very good at this so I've got to keep emphasizing how good I am at this particular thing the pressure on the individual the celebrity is great and we've seen and now we're back thinking about the Christian world we've seen those celebrity leaders we've seen the reality of many of their lives revealed the pressure is great I don't suppose these people started out as bad people but the pressure was immense and it became impossible for them to maintain that celebrity status for long. God didn't send us a star-studded cabaret of Christian superstars. He came himself to a tiny backwater in a long forgotten part of the world 
and he lived among us. That's how Jesus did it. He didn't crave the limelight. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't take every opportunity to gather huge crowds. Sometimes he walked to an individual. Sometimes he, he did what his father wanted him to do, not what he thought would gather the biggest crowds always. I can't be, you can't be a Christian super, superstar. It's inaccessible. It doesn't help. If that's your main diet, that becomes what you want to become, what you think is desirable as a Christian. That's your discipleship aim, to become like this person. And yet I can't be a Christian celebrity. You can't be a Christian celebrity. But I can be a man of integrity. You can be a woman of integrity who follows Jesus. And ultimately what Paul is saying here is this is what demonstrates that you believe the gospel. That humbly you follow him first. And so brothers and sisters, let's just be careful about how we treat this world of celebrity. Let's be careful how we think about one another. Let's remember that we are one in Christ, united in him. That Jesus has given himself for us, his great love for us. Is that we are one in Christ. That we will be united, demonstrating that our love for God is supreme in our lives. And we'd have nothing to do with a celebrity Christian culture or championing one leader over another, or even thinking that my ideas are more important than everybody else's ideas, but that we would submit them all ultimately to Christ. Thanks for listening.